Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert to buy now. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. A production of iHeartRadio. Hello, welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. My name is Noel. They call me Ben. We're joined, as always, with our super producer, Paul Mission Control Deccant. Most importantly, you are you, you are here, and that makes this the stuff they don't want you to know. Follow us on Twitter, I guess we should say. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, Let's see. So we have a Twitter account for the show, and I think two... Two of our hosts here are on Twitter in varying degrees. Matt, you're not on Twitter. Maybe I was at some point. I don't remember the account if I do have one. Yeah, I I have an account, but I barely touch it. Um, I don't even lurk, really. I just see tweets reposted on Instagram and other parts of the Internet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm probably out of... um, out of the four of us, maybe not the five of us, fellow conspiracy realists listening today, you may be much more active, but out out of our host production team, I'm probably the most active on Twitter. Uh, it's just an e- it has some advantages that work despite the fact that it is a dumpster fire very often. Uh, you might love Twitter. You might hate it. You probably hate it but you've definitely heard about it. But there's lovely people on there. Ben, the only way I interact with Twitter is I go to, I'm signed in, I guess, as our company account or our show account. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. I go to the notifications thing and I just look at the usually awesome, wonderful things cool people are saying. Right. Yeah. We have a very, uh, we have 
some great leads. Uh, we have some great listeners on Twitter and we're, you know, knock on wood, as they say, I hope this is wood. I don't know. But uh, knock on wood, as they say, we we have carved out with your help, folks, we've carved out actually relatively nice, cordial and informative place in our our little corner of Twitter. But a lot of Twitter is not like that. You know, it's uh, a lot of Twitter is hot takes, maybe some shrill overreactions, but then every so often really meaningful news that some mainstream outlets would ignore otherwise, you know, like Twitter was instrumental to the Arab Spring. Twitter has become a way of circumventing oppression by the state at certain times. It's been a way of communicating during disasters and emergencies. Uh, but also, it has some dangerous stuff going on. Right now, if you think about it, Twitter has more than 450 million active users. And those numbers get kind of kind of loosey-goosey, right? They change day to day. But that means if Twitter was a country, it would be the third largest in the world, just after China and India. And with that many people involved, is no wonder Twitter has become the subject of multiple conspiracies. Noel, Matt, I feel like at this point, before we lose people, we should say we're we're going somewhere with this, right? Like we have we have a reason we're talking about Twitter. And even if you're not on like on Twitter, this will still be interesting in some surprising ways. So here are the facts. And it's not all about Elon Musk. There's a little bit of that in here, but it's not all about him. This is a, this is a bigger issue with Twitter. For sure. I mean, Twitter began, like many startups, as an idea uh, in the mind of an undergrad. Uh, this one in particular at NYU, a guy you've probably heard of, though he's been less part of the story as of late, Jack Dorsey. Uh, in 2006, he shared the idea of online communication with his coworkers at a place, it was actually an early podcasting company called Odeo, which just to me sounds like odious audio that doesn't sounds like <laughs> bad hot takes in audio form yeah and and think about that too a podcasting company in 2006 mm-hmm. that's before the term hadn't even, even coined had it or it was maybe right around that time yeah it's it's right after it's like two years after the term is coined there's already a company uh if you look into it a journalist named Ben Hammersley apparently coined the term in The Guardian in February of 2004. But a podcasting company in 2006, that's so nuts to me. Uh, this is, Matt, this is before you and I were working at How Stuff Works. This, I, like, I don't think I was in the U.S. at this time. <laughs> I was I was working at How Stuff Works in 2006. All right. Just saying. So, gee, we weren't really doing podcasts yet, I think, until around 2008. Right. Yeah, because I, I joined up in uh, 2007, I think. So, yeah, this is nuts. So, Jack Dorsey is in a very pioneering, forward facing company, and he comes up with this idea. He basically says, What if we had a social media platform where people couldn't say as much at once. What if, what if the world was one big group text? 
<laughs> yeah, and of course, you know, it was the era. Not that we're not still in it. Now we're more in the era of making up words that don't exist. But back then it was more about leaving out vowels. Um, so it was, tw- you'd probably you'd still say it Twitter, but if you look at it now, it'd be more like Twitter, Twitter, tw- <laughs> double, what's the double <laughs> T for? Yeah, Twitter, D-W-T-T-R. Um, I got to say, I, I know I've said this before, but uh, a good friend of the show, uh, Matt Riddle, um, he he was always kind of my Sherpa for new tech and, you know, culture stuff and turn me on to records and, and movies and all kinds of neat stuff. But he's the first one that told me what Twitter was. And I was beyond skeptical. I was like, that sounds ridiculous. That Who is going to use that? Why wouldn't you want to say as much as you can say? But the, the what seems like a bug on the onset actually becomes the feature. That editing that's built in is part of it. It's about pithy, quick responses. But the thing that he pointed out, which I didn't get, and which really required that adoption was that it's going to be a, a, a bird's eye, no pun intended, view into the lives of famous people that's going to be unfiltered. And that's really kind of what made it take off, was that it was this, you know, getting rid of the PR person. Um, it's it's this, these direct takes, you know, from people that you would not otherwise really understand what their life was about. Well, yeah, and that's a great business idea, right? If you could sell enough people on it, which Jack did. Uh, but just imagining Twitter in the beginning as uh, a base camp campfire, or I'm trying to think of uh, Monday.com or one of these like Slack channels, like that's kind of how it began, right? An internal company uh-huh. talking to themselves, but like, right, but that was it, right? Just how Facebook started as like right. a college campus say, thing. Yeah. 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 So, uh, like the, uh, I, a friend of the show, Casey Pegram, and I had extensive conversations about this, talking about the recursive loop of uh, discourse on the internet, on social platforms. Uh, Twitter and most social media, the best way to think of it is two mirrors facing one another, right? Creating endless reflections and iterations that, that <laughs> purport to be, that purport to be original. And the um, I, I have this in the notes. The primary, the primary advantage of Twitter is, is yes, the idea of unfiltered access. But I would go a bit further. We'll we'll talk about this in in today's episode. I'll go a bit further and say it's not the access really. If you think about it, it's a Faustian bargain. And what you're saying is, I will get this insight, get this possible look past the filters of spin and past the marketing and the PR and the agents and the managers. And in return, I run the risk that one day I will be exposed in a similar manner. It's kind of like the stone chair in Black Monday Murders, uh, which we, <laughs> we keep I keep bringing it up anyway, but yeah. But now everybody's the, got one and we no, all sit on everybody, it willingly. <laughs> everybody's in the stone chair. Yeah, yeah. Everybody's a micro celebrity, you know, like in and their a own micro little fiefdom. Mm-hmm. And yeah. sacrifice. Because that's what t- Twitter was called, right? Micro blogging in the beginning. And like you know, I was intensely skeptical. Uh, I was thinking... This is so limiting. Surely people want more nuanced consideration of ideas. And I was very wrong. <laughs> Do you nope. think it predicted the decaying attention span of, uh, of human beings or maybe caused it to some degree? 
I don't know. Yeah, it's a bit chicken and egg. Uh, back when eggs were cheaper, it's it, it's tough because we we know that they're still very. Um, there's still very nuanced, very intelligent conversation on Twitter, but like a lot of social media, it is what you make it. And you're kind of fighting this fight where you you attempt to curate what you want to see, what you want to think about versus what this private entity wants you to see and what it wants you to think about. And that's where the story kind of, that that's where we get to, right? Just want to say, there's a really interesting example like a, a perfect illustration of this that we're going to talk about when it comes to a certain reporter's reporting via twitter on the twitter files that you see both of those things happening at the same time ben it's really oh, interesting it's beautiful. yeah it's a it's a dangerous symphony right uh so so back to our buddy jack right jack is right now he's kind of like a pre myspace tom you know and like we said he's making this as a pet project for his colleagues at Odeo, right? You can send your LOLs, LMAOs to each other. And then like, <laughs> that guy, Isaiah in marketing is hilarious and so on and so on. Uh, and then in July 15th, 2006, this gets introduced to the public. And this is kind of like when Facebook no longer required you to be at, uh, you know, attending a certain institution or any academic institution at all. And during the first few months, the website gets something like 20,000 tweets every 24 hours. This would be the Matt Riddle age. We love Matt Riddle on this show. So Matt, if you're listening, shout out. This is when the early adopters, uh, like the Jonathan Stricklands of the world, are getting into Twitter. And in just a year, that number trebles. It grows to 60,000 tweets. Uh, and then Twitter goes to South by Southwest, just like stuff they don't want you to know. That's right, folks. They were, we're thinking the of a yeah, yeah. We're, we're basically <laughs> the they were they were thinking of a show that didn't exist, and they said we've got to be like this show. But South by Southwest was a game changer for Twitter, right? Yeah, just two years on the service just absolutely exploded, you know, from 60,000 tweets a day to 300,000 tweets a day. Uh, and then two years after that in 2010, we're talking 50 million tweets a day. How what much is there to do say with all that? That's, yeah, yeah. Well, that's what I'm saying. Like, how do you, you know, and I guess this is also, you know, Twitter really is what kind of popularized or maybe even, you know, uh, mainstreamed the hashtag because that was the only way you could kind of um, filter all of that insane amount of information, you know, around categories or, you know, trending topics or whatever it might be with a simple tag that was just, you know, a, a number sign and a word. And it was at first, like, I remember not understanding the you know, computer science-y part of it, but it really was a way of categorizing all those things. And you could search for things by hashtag. Maybe the search features weren't quite as robust at first, but that ultimately became very important, especially when we start talking about, you know, some of those game-changing, very important uses of Twitter that actually had ramifications in a global, you know, political way. Uh, yeah. I think it's important to remember that these aren't, I don't know, like a lot of social media posts on other platforms a post becomes like a piece of content that is used and then a bunch of people comment on it and maybe that original user comments a couple times. It, in my mind, Twitter is one ongoing conversation that like begins usually with one tweet or one picture or something like that 
And then it it sprawls. Like the Twitter conversations become conversations, not just comments, right? There's a there's a very big difference between the comment section in a place and then a Twitter conversation where people are adding each other and then having splinter conversations. You you see the best and the worst of people and of robots. <laughs> but, but also I think inherent in, in what you're describing, Matt, is that limited uh, length of the individual communications because it allows other people to fill in those gaps and either continue the conversation, add their bit in a way that the original poster couldn't have possibly just by the very fact of the limited number of characters. And that's where you get the spiciness. Yeah, 280 characters you could start threading things right you'll see i've read there's one amazing uh one amazing story that always stays with me from this lady who goes on an ill-fated journey with uh, a sex worker and the sex worker's boyfriend and the sex worker's pimp who are two different dudes and this thing this goes viral and it's a very long story it's well written it's well told but it's a ton of tweets at only 280 characters at a time. And over the past almost 20 years now, 17 years, Twitter has in a very real, very weird way changed the world, or at least it's had some hot takes about the world changing. This is where you see people pre-TikTok arguing that Earth is flat or the moon is fake or you're hallucinating your ring finger or whatever, right? Oh, I didn't hear uh, that one. Did you make that I just, up? Yeah. Oh, but it, okay. it fits, right? Yeah. And, uh, uh, Everybody so looked at their hand. And I instantly mm. did do that. Yes. yes. <laughs> so, no question. Yeah. So that gives us that unfiltered access to public figures, celebrities, and celebrity worship is gross, but it's a big part of why Twitter works. And this also gives a lot of wholesome interaction. And a lot of stuff the old internet would call cringe, like the president of the United States talking trash, right? No filters, lots of typos, misspelled, uh, gets typos pointed out, doubles down and says, no, I meant to say Kofefe. And people who understand what I'm saying get what I mean. Because God's coming. Yeah, God forbid I make a typo. Um, and also, I, I admit, I loved Kofefe. I totally. loved it. I was... I was walking around like I was bugging Matt going by and just like whispering Kofefe, the same way that Marvel characters say hell, hail Hydra. Still have nightmares, Ben, uh, but that's fine. <laughs> uh, but but it's interesting because we've also watched the previous administration for the first time use Twitter as a platform to get messaging out while the while they were in office. Right. So interesting. There's so many different uses of a platform like this. Well, you know, with the celebrity unfiltered stuff, that's all fun and games, right? But when you start having a head of state communicate in such an unfiltered, direct way, that can have real ramifications that even members of that administration are not crazy about. A hundred percent, right? And remember the president before the Twitter president uh, had, there was a huge controversy about whether or not that guy could keep his Blackberry. Right, because right. people were worried about security oh, and worried about messaging. Times. Simpler right. times. Yeah, Pepperidge Farm remembers. And so this uh, <laughs> this is nuts because just picture it. Now someone who literally works at the United Nations doing important stuff is still they're they're experiencing that 
Matt level Kofefe PTSD. They're like, I'm in charge of trying to save millions of lives. And now I have to go check in Twitter to see whether or not the president of the U S is going to launch a nuke. Right. I have to let's let's hope he's in a good mood today. And I mean, you know, those ramifications they were talking about could result in somebody else launching a nuke because of a typo (laughs) or because you know what I mean? Like it just really removes the reins entirely from the geopolitical stallion, if you will. (laughs) I'm reminded of our conversation with Dan Harmon when he was talking about how one of the only things that made him feel better in the time of the Trump presidency was if if the president was having a bad day visually on Twitter, right? So if, if there was <laughs> yeah. a visual representation right. of a bad day, which, you know, confounded me at the time, but I, it make, I guess it makes sense. It just, it's so strange to me to think how much power this, this thing had. Yes. Yeah. And this, again, uh, probably the best comparison for Twitter is, uh, best comparison for a lot of things, is the Sorcerer's Apprentice in Fantasia, right? To build a better mop. Uh, and the mops get out of control. The mops are the tweets, you know? Yeah. And it's it's not even like the tech behind a platform like Twitter is somehow next level or anything. It's it's text. It's the simplest. Po- I mean, would maybe, remember when you, you couldn't even put a picture on Twitter? It had to be like a link to a picture. So it really is just the, the, the highest, you know, end of the tech is all of that organizing stuff that I'm talking about earlier. But in general, compared to like, say, Instagram or Facebook that has all kinds of different channels and images and things like that, Twitter is dirt simple. It was really just a matter of uh, Dorsey being the first to market with a thing that caught on and then became those uh, those brooms or mops or whatever from the Sorcerer's Apprentice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, with this this episode is probably going to be a long one. It might end up being a two parter, but we're we're laying the land here. Right. We want you to know the background. Uh, and let's before we go to the break, let's talk a little bit about the recent changes. The big, big recent change in Twitter happened in October of 2022 uh, through a various series of negotiations misadventures and poison pills, a uh, now 51-year-old emerald mine heir uh, named Elon Musk finalized a deal to buy Twitter for $44 billion U.S. dollars. You can find him there now. Uh, he is very active. He's tweeting everything from memes to political stances, ideological stuff, updates on the Twitter platform. He responds to critics and fans alike. Let's go ahead and read yeah, his out. latest tweet uh, because, you know, we want him to get his money's worth here. Uh, Elon Musk also, of course, CEO famously of Tesla and uh, very involved with PayPal and so on. Um, he just an hour ago, he said, Giga Berlin is the machine that builds the machine. Cool. I'll have to do some, <laughs> some digging on that one. Now, but, wait, uh, hold on. Guys, I've got a, a, a someone here that says, Elon Musk, yes, totally me, totally Elon. Is that is that Elon Musk? Is that the one? Sounds like him, yeah. It's got a picture of him. It used to, oh, see, yeah, but it used to say King Twit. 
or something like that was what he he changed his little about me to. Can I just add really quickly when you say he 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 finalized that forty four billion dollar deal, he essentially was forced to put his money where his mouth was, right? Because he you know made all this you know fuss about how he was going to buy Twitter, and he essentially ended up getting forced to buy it for a pretty inflated rate. Uh, and we're going to get to obviously what happened when he started taking charge, some of which was his fault, and some of which is just the nature of a platform that maybe is no longer. The, the the newest kid on the block. Yeah, Twitter has had historically a very difficult time with monetization, which is, you know, the fancy capitalist word for how do we make this thing that people like also make money for us. Uh, Twitter has been very valuable to a lot of people, activists, journalists, so on, but it has not been really delivering money for the the investors and the capitalists involved. Elon Musk sought to change that very forward-looking investor and champion of various kinds of technology. SpaceX would be one of the most exciting things there. But as soon as he acquired Twitter, and you are right, Noel, it's it's kind of a poison pill that was given to him. Um, check out Check out Poison Pill if you want to understand more about how those deals get sneaky and snarky. Shortly after he gets Twitter, he becomes embroiled in a conspiracy. And that is our episode today. What the heck are the Twitter files? We're going to pause for a word from our sponsors. Uh, and We'll be back. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer? Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. (laughs) 
here's where it gets crazy. December 2022, uh, not too long ago, just a few months after Oni taking ownership of Twitter, like we said, he got a hold of it in October, and Elon Musk starts sending things to journalists because now he has the keys to the the car, right? He has he he has bought the Tesla that is Twitter, and he's in the driver's seat, and he is able to go through a lot of stuff that you could only access if you own the company. And so he reaches out to these journalists and he says, "I got behind the curtain. I'm in the nuts and bolts. I'm in the weeds. I've got the I am the inside source now, right? And I want you, journalists, veterans that I respect, I want you to." Look at all this stuff I'm going to give you. I'm going to give it to you for free, exclusive access. And all I ask is that you publish it on Twitter first. Very meta, right? And not a bad caveat, not a deal breaker. It's If you're a journalist, that's a hard thing to say no to, right? Yeah, and he reached out. I mean, he respected these journalists because they're, they were each excellent at, in their field. Like, just each one is made of excellence. And... uh Man, when they did it, <laughs> wouldn't that be cool to be made of excellence? Um, well, <laughs> I like it. It's a motto for something. And I'm trying to think. I'm trying to think of the funniest product made Jerry of Bill excellence. And Ted. Yeah, yeah. Mm. made of excellence. Yeah, that's good. Miller Charming Light. toilet paper. Sorry. Oh yeah, Miller Light. Made of excellence. The beer is so good you can drink it with your mouth. <laughs> okay. Sorry. Well, I don't know what my, what my point was. He reached out to legitimate people who would legitimize. Uh, the things that he was finding, right? Who would lend credibility to the story that Elon wanted to tell through these documents. Yeah. And I mean, he was in theory delivering on a promise that he made before finishing that acquisition. He has always been a advocate of free speech, except where it concerns him. Um, and he believed that censorship on the platform had been motivated politically, or at the very least ideologically. Um, and he uh, assisted in releasing this treasure trove of information, including internal Slack messages and emails from officials, top top uh, folks in the company that confirmed uh, some key decisions, decisions to suppress certain news stories. Uh, for example, one on the eve of the U.S. presidential election um, that concerned Joe Biden, that concerned damaging information about Joe Biden. These files were also showing uh, certain inner workings that discussed uh, banning former U.S. President Donald Trump from the platform entirely after the followers of that president uh, attacked the capital um, of the United States on January 6th, 2021. And, you know, we, we know that it was ultimately argued that he used that platform to encourage that to a degree. And that could be seen as a violation of the terms and services of Twitter. But we'll get into that a bit more down the road. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not defending him. But again, Kofefe is just Gold. It's, it's really like YOLO. Kofefe uh, Co yeah. is like YOLO. You know, it's just yes. like, just go for it. Kofefe. <laughs> the memes alone. I, should, I, I, I shouldn't be so tickled by that. I think I've lost touch with reality, to be honest with you. Uh, and that's what Twitter's all about. So, <laughs> the, uh, isn't that funny? It's simultaneously about being hyper in touch with reality, but depending on the echo chamber that you tune into, it can make you completely detached from reality. Right. So, again, it, it, as a tool in your arsenal, can be very useful. But if you're just fully 
down the Twitter rabbit hole in a particular direction can isolate you from everything else completely. One brilliant thing about Twitter is that it weaponizes and exacerbates some of the cultic indoctrination practices we've talked about for years. One of the big ones being, uh, and this is just a very specific example as we're moving through this, one of the big ones being the use of jargon. The character limit that existed for so long now like required you to use abbreviations, to use acronyms, right? To use shortened slang. And this kind of jargon gives people an inclusive feeling, a them versus us feeling, which further pushes them toward extreme beliefs. And I'm not necessarily talking about terrorism or like the black hand or any any kind of stuff like that what i'm talking about like it could be it could be people talking about tekken it could be people talking about philosophy it just encourages the rabbit holing the nicheness of it all and that's why uh that's why the black box is so important and so scary Twitter is very much a black box. That's what Elon Musk, love him or hate him, wanted to try to fix. At least that's what he said. So he releases eight loose installments of what we call the Twitter files. So the first is something a lot of people have asked us about on the show in the past, which is the Hunter Biden laptop controversy. Yes. Uh, this is called an October surprise, right? Right before an election, you want to release a story that puts your um, your opponent in the race in a bad light, right? And At the very least on the defensive, you know, big time, because it sucks all the air out of their particular room and forces them to address that instead of doing the important bits that you should be doing uh, on the eve of an election or very close to an election. Right. If you're responding, you're not progressing. Ah, exactly. Exactly. Oh, that's a really good way to think about it, Ben. Uh, like on a timeline moving forward, you can't talk about the new thing that is going to get you to the next place. You got to keep addressing this daggum thing about my son and a laptop and Ukraine and access to the president, uh, which but at the same time, guys, I got to tell you, looking more into this, not good. Um, it doesn't um, it doesn't feel credible at all at first when you start diving into it. Because like, wait, that happened. Wait, then that happened. And then yeah, you start but... to go, wait a second. Hold on. This, I think this might people be real. smoke crack. Yeah. <laughs> and you know what? They're, uh, do they make the best decisions? I'm not saying they're bad people. I'm just saying sometimes they don't make the best decisions. And maybe we do an episode on that. Right. I think we uh, probably when, should. I think we should. I think it's due diligence and it's time because at the beginning, you know, it was so politicized that people were being very tribal about it and we didn't have the ability to look objectively at the facts and the allegations of conspiracy, which is what this show is all about. So now we can and we want to thank everybody listening for your patience. Everyone who's written to us about this, we wanted to make sure that we had the facts Right. And we weren't falling for smoke and mirrors, which is a huge part of this. But hey, shout out to any one of those journalists who did work on the Twitter files. If you want to, we'd love to discuss it with you in a full episode. Mm -hmm. And so the idea, the laptop controversy, just in the headline, like the log line of this as a film, is that a guy named Hunter Biden, the son of 
Joe Biden, who is the U.S. president as we record, uh, had a laptop and it was found abandoned at a computer shop in the state of Delaware. It was taken there by somebody. It was taken there by somebody. And according to uh, according to Rudy Giuliani, uh, former mayor of New York uh, and lawyer uh, for Donald Trump for a time, this laptop contained evidence that the Biden dynasty was crooked and in bed with the government of Ukraine. And Interesting. This, is very, this is very helpful for Vladimir Putin, right? And the rationale for the invasion of Ukraine. Uh, well, the second invasion of Ukraine. The first one was taking Crimea and the world didn't do dick about it. Uh, yeah. But- well, let's talk about what, what the allegation was there. The concept is that Hunter Biden was attempting to sell access to his father, uh, right? So like to the highest echelons of U.S. government for generally business interests in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this is something that has the, the idea of influence and lobbying as we know, it's it's a very murky space, right? So again, we're going to do an episode on this. Uh, what you need to know now, if you've never heard of this controversy, is that the laptop was later verified as belonging to this guy, Hunter Biden, and some of the emails found on the laptop were authenticated. So the first Twitter files installment focuses on the fallout from this. There's a story that runs in the New York Post, which is a legit source of news. And this story is based on files from that laptop. And the journalists at the Post say, we got this information from Rudy Giuliani and from a guy who works with Trump named Steve Bannon. Now, this is before Steve Bannon became radioactive and got uh, provably, provably included in attempting to orchestrate the overthrow of democracy in the United States. That was his conspiracy. It's not a theory. He tried it. It didn't work. I'm sure he has a podcast. Uh, so, <laughs> so Twitter and Facebook, this is the true thing though, right? Every, everybody get, nobody comes out looking good on this one. Uh, Twitter and Facebook, both, limited the ability for users to share the laptop story. They purposely, because they control the faucet, right? So they purposely turned the faucet down and all of a sudden people were getting shadow banned and they couldn't, they couldn't share this story. Twitter even, this is true, Twitter even suspended the New York Post account. And just really quickly, shadow banning is where you're not kicked off the platform, but your reach is severely limited. Isn't that right? Yeah. Yeah. And you're not really made aware of it, but you just kind of can tell because I don't know. How can you tell? I guess, I guess you can look at your, uh, your analytics and just see that your posts are not reaching as many people as they used to. And if it gets to a certain level, then that would fall under being shadow banned. Mm -hmm. Or you could use a second account. There are a couple different ways. Yeah. Uh, And that's the that's the second installment of the Twitter files all about shadow banning. But so this uh, this first one, right, uh, the platforms themselves say, hey, we kind of made mistakes, right? 
we we just had editorial concerns because we didn't know whether or not this story was true or whether it was like propaganda due to the election. Yeah, but but the real sticky part, and I'm just going to refer Matt Taibbi's Twitter feed is how I learned about this. I'm sure you guys did too originally, but in those like short messages, right? They were just cascading. And in there, he talks about how and shows images from the Twitter files, the emails, about how internally Twitter gets requests from political parties, both parties, the two major ones in, in the U.S., to suppress a story or to like prevent a story from getting big. And they take, they take requests from both sides. But I think one of the major things that it pointed out with regards to especially this story is that the Democratic Party was way more effective for one reason or another, whether it was personal beliefs of the you know individual employees working at Twitter or Twitter itself and their policies, was they were tending to allow those actions to be taken, the suppressing of a story, in the, this one in particular. And with owning the doorway, with owning the platform, that becomes very close to pushing the election. Right. Mm-hmm. To fixing fixing the match. And they're the tech company side of this is they will say, look, we got we got burned because we fell for the Russian hack. We we fell for these DNC email leak things. We didn't wanna we didn't want to make the same mistake again. But as any longtime conspiracy realist knows, when you attempt to ban something in this way, you create the Streisand effect. Uh, and that that's named after Barbara Streisand, who tried to get people to stop sharing a picture. And of course, it being the internet, everybody went nuts and way more people shared the picture. Wasn't uh, it over a house or something? <laughs> right. Yeah. Or the, or the Cobra effect that we talk about in Ridiculous History. Uh, things get out of hand. So... If you were on the fence about whether or not there was a conspiracy, then you see Twitter shutting down any conversation about it. That can prove to you that there is a conspiracy afoot. And just within a few days, Twitter reversed that block uh, and changed its policies uh, internally on hacked materials. So this would be a, a, a tweak, I imagine, to the terms of service. But they were still blocking it, essentially. It's just now there's a pop-up with that states, you know, their policy on hacked materials. But okay. the, the question becomes, was the laptop hacked? Like, did that con- constitute hacked materials? I, there, there's a lot. It's, it gets so complicated. But, like, it, it was basically Twitter justifying their actions. Because the, to, to answer the question that you just asked, Matt, it would require n- knowledge of how that laptop was obtained, whether it was had to be decrypted or broken into in, in order to get that information. Is that the, is that the deal? Yeah. I mean, that to, in my mind, that's what's happening here. At least if you read through the, the emails that are out there and exist, it feels like they were trying to come up with a reason to keep the materials either difficult to access or impossible to access. Mm, right. So again, what's, what's the motivation? Is it ideological, right? And if Twitter were indeed a public square and not a private entity, the answer would be clear. One must be transparent. 
but that's that's the sticky wicket. We'll get to in a second. But also just the their, whether they did anything about it uh, to, you know, your liking, Matt, or to anyone's liking or in a really effective way. There was a public apology at the very least, which isn't something CEOs typically do. Right. Yeah, Jack Dorsey, uh, still CEO at the time, said essentially mistakes were made uh, and they reversed the th- they reversed the decision. But the damage was done. Right. That's why retractions are never printed on the front page. Yeah. And so uh, we mentioned the second installment, which was the or we kind of preface this. That's the shadow banning. So details about shadow banning come out. Shadow banning basically is like imagine you've got a chorus of people singing and they each have a microphone. Right. And you cut one person's mic so they still feel like they're singing they're hearing other people sing and they think they're singing along, but they don't know their mic has been cut. Uh, this happened to, um, remember the band, the documentary about the band, I think, uh, Robbie Robertson, the, uh, kind of the, the guy who like, which one the drummer I'm talking about the last waltz or something yeah, else. Yeah. Last, last waltz. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so his, his mic is cut in a lot of those songs and it looks like he's singing, but, but you, yeah, if you pay attention, you're not hearing them. Well, that's so interesting because the, well, I actually watched that recently. I think it's one of the great concert documentaries. Yeah. And one thing that's noteworthy about it is those guys, they all sing together. Typically. Um, I did not know about this, but they have really great mic, um, technique they they oh, are yeah. all backed away from the mics and singing quite loud so one could argue it, it create becomes this like singular voice as opposed to an individual voice popping out here and there anyway so yeah but anyway, i'm sorry i'm just be, <laughs> being a nerd about that film I, i'm quite a fan so yeah i'm i'm mentioning uh i'm mentioning the band because i i love them and i think that's a good example of shadow banning uh so the- you guys still haven't said which band you're talking about the one. No, I'm just. Yeah, joking. I'm sorry. T. Uh, Levon Helm is uh, is the guy who I think got really shortchanged. Uh, in that phenomenal. One. It's really it hard to phenomenal. play the drums and sing. And sing. Uh, yeah, yeah, and he does it uh, with aplomb. So the third installment of the Twitter files. Again, we're on three of eight. Uh, centers entirely on banning the president of the United States or the politician and then the president, right? Donald Trump. Should we ban this guy? Uh, is, is he a, does he qualify as a private user? Has he violated Twitter's terms of service, right? Being a private entity, Twitter has the ability to codify their own laws, right? Those are the terms you agree to when you use the private service. And, uh, they ultimately do decide to ban him. And then there's the fourth installment. These all kind of build on each other, right? Um, it talks about the attack on the United States, January 6th. And you get this, you see inside or under the hood of Twitter, where you see the employees reacting to what's happening at the Capitol. 
the fifth installment then went back to the Trump ban and all of the you know machinations behind that explored how Twitter employees decided to ban uh, the former president. Um, then the sixth installment described how the FBI got in touch with Twitter to suggest that some action be taken against several accounts for uh, what they saw as uh, the spreading of election disinformation. Which is kind of a weird thing. In the time when you can say whatever you want and, you know, even if it's wrong or purposefully wrong, are you allowed to have the FBI investigate you? Mm -hmm. (laughs) I don't know. I know, right? Like a lot of people don't know the extent to which intelligence agencies have influenced editorial boards of so-called independent journalist outfits, right? New York Times. Uh, historically has has played ball with state intelligence services. What was that operation? What was it called, Ben? It was where intelligence agencies put specialists inside media companies. Mockingbird. Operation Mockingbird. Mockingbird. Yeah, yeah. Real thing. Real conspiracy. Uh, the <laughs> And it's spooky, right? It's scary. So the seventh installment goes back to the Hunter Biden story, and it shows how Twitter works with the U.S. intelligence community to game plan how to handle the info. <sighs> and then the eighth installment, right, the last one, shows Twitter... 100% agreeing to shill propaganda for Uncle Sam by uh, whitelisting accounts from CENTCOM, United States Central Command, for the purposes of propaganda in other countries. Uh, so maybe whitelisting, maybe we define that real quick. Is that just, what is it? It's like an inclusion list, essentially, as opposed to, you know, it's, it's when you allow certain things to come through, Right. Like an approved yeah. list um, uh, of with permissions wise, I reckon. Like you know, you can you can do that with applications on your computer. You can exclude certain things or whitelist certain things. You can do that with websites as well. Does that mean increasing reach somehow within the Twitter? Like uh, yeah, in the parlance of Twitter. That's a good question. I just know whitelisting in general means something gets through, and things that are blacklisted, the opposite. There, they don't get through. Mm. So maybe they got some special love, right? Yeah. But ultimately, we're talking about propaganda, right? Like, that's some Voice of America stuff. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And maybe, hey, maybe if this show doesn't work out, we can all, uh, the three of us can just go work for Voice of America. Hush your mouth. (laughs) (laughs) Matt says no. Hey, I'm just talking about (laughs) Shaft. So... Uh, We are going to pause for a word from our sponsors as we fill out our Voice of America applications. Uh, Matt, Matt. Oh, okay. We'll we'll see how you feel at the end of the uh, at the end of this break. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. 
$25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. And we're back. All right, Matt, are you, uh, are you on board? With uh, Noel, Noel and me, I'll I'll do it. I'll do it too. I just have to have some kind of name that's like really sticking it uh, mm. to him. Like uh, my name will be Hog Dommerschold. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful, love it. So before we get before we get uh, shadow banned with prejudice uh, for for a beautiful bit of wordplay, Matt. Uh, we have to admit, this was huge. Those Twitter files released were huge. They were very niche in some ways, right? They were talking to an audience that had already been converted to a certain degree of tribalism, and they were easy for some people to ignore, right? Uh, but this inspired a lot of people. The folks who were targeted with these releases were very highly motivated by them. Some politicians vowed to hold congressional investigations, but people still don't agree about how huge or meaningful these files actually were. Musk saw this as a smoking gun, a confirmation of a long-running right-wing conspiracy theory. Uh, and you may remember this, folks. Um, there's this idea. It was very popular in past years, this idea that social media is somehow inherently very left-wing and that if you are a right-wing politician, you are going to be unfairly censored because these commies in charge of social media hate what you stand for. Maybe. Uh, um or that's the theory. That's that the is theory. the theory. That is the we've theory. Also, we, we've seen, you know, with that, that does seem to be, there seems to be a little bit of sand behind yeah. that when it comes to the way Twitter uh, addressed certain issues, especially when it came to left-leaning politicians. But we also know that social media at large has gone the other way. 
in a big way uh, as well in terms of, you know, infiltration of potentially, you know, allegedly infiltration of, of Russian influence and uh, and disinformation uh, that is more right leaning. So uh, is it inherent in the platform? Maybe some of these decisions highlight instances where it was. But overall, I would say no. Not inherent to social media at large, like it's some cabal, you know, of of left leaning uh, individuals that are trying to just wreck things for the right. I just I don't buy that. Yeah. I mean, it's like a lot of claims. It feels a little reductive. And the idea of a persecution complex is a very powerful tool, uh, especially if you want to push authoritarian beliefs you know, Benito Mussolini was able to accrue a great deal of power and influence by weaponizing persecution complexes. It's it's quite common in fascism. And just remember that 450 million active users on Twitter alone, uh, comparing it to the third largest country in the world, with a number like that, there has to be some nuance. You know what I mean? Like, it, it doesn't make sense that it would be all one way or the other. You know, we're just seeing a couple of instances in a grand scheme of things. Imagine all the stuff we don't know. Again, this isn't like everything. This is just the Twitter files, just some documents that were released uh, about a specific instance. It's very true, but there, there, just something that Matt Taibbi points out in his reporting was the balance, right? And should there be a 100% or a 50-50 balance if you've only got two political parties in any country uh, for a thing like sh- theoretically there should be right everybody gets treated equally all the opinions get treated equally all the stuff being said but just the the point that the individual staff members if you're looking at a pie chart are you know above well above 50 percent uh dem- like democrat leaning or i guess what you know what whatever you would be considered democrat leaning and that fact mixed with the way some of these tools are used in the communication lines that are open, right? Because you would a lot of times just reach out to someone on Twitter and say, hey, we've got some stuff to review. Here's a list of list of tweets and statuses we need you to review. And then Twitter would respond back, okay, handled those, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and then also the people at the top are are humans, which means they may feel an emotional or moral imperative to do certain things, right? And ultimately, it's up to them. There's no law against them doing this on a private platform. That's, That's the issue. Also, with the idea of the persecution theory, there are, you know, there is some sand to it. As we said, if you look at some modern studies, like recent statistics, what you see is that misinformation and propaganda on social media overall it spreads much more successfully if it's on the if it's right right wing right the, mm. the and to a certain extent uh the more extreme the better there's a goldilocks zone of it not to say there isn't left wing misinformation it just doesn't spread as well uh so so the persecution thing again it's it's a powerful narrative but be be careful with it exercise skepticism when you hear it because sometimes people are trying to portray themselves as a victim as a way of tricking you into agreeing with them even if it is against your better interest just objectively uh and, but the big point is to people who bought into this 
again, with validity, this confirmed that people were being silenced for not following the official line. And folks were saying, hey, that's the opposite of what Twitter's supposed to be about. And there was an equal and opposite reaction because, of course, it's Twitter. So there were a lot of journalists in the tech space and even former Twitter employees who were saying, ah, Elon Musk is overhyping this. We already know that it's messy, to your point, Matt, to try to, to your point, Noel, to try to get everybody to agree like, we know they're tough decisions. We're kind of pioneers. We're the ones writing the rule book. We're building, as, as uh, the corporate types like to say, we're building the airplane while we're flying it, right? So it's, we're not- Bad idea. Yeah, right. It's a terrible way to build an airplane. Uh, and so they're saying, like, these are innocent mistakes rather than some grand conspiracy. And that's our question. Has Elon Musk exposed a conspiracy did he overhype things? Was he on the money? I mean, maybe a little bit of both. It, I think so. You think so? Yeah. I, I, do, I, I do think it's a little bit of both because, again, Elon Musk, I guess he's more of a libertarian than a hard right-leaning individual, but even that's debatable. Uh, he, he does seem to be a free speech first, no matter what the implications. Again, though, this is not an episode entirely about Elon Musk. We've also seen him uh, – contradict that um, ideology when it comes to him <laughs> himself and, uh, and and people doing things that make him look bad. You know, he will then uh, take action to prevent that from happening, like with the Elon plane tracker and all of that stuff and, and things oh, right. that, are, that are vexing to him, but are technically, you know, public information that is just being put out there under the tenets of free speech. So it's hard to take a guy like that seriously when he's constantly do as I say, not as I do. Um, that's my biggest beef with, with Elon. Can I tell you guys, I did something very uncharacteristic and I ended up watching roughly a quarter of the Super Bowl last night. Oh, uh, nice. How'd it go? Is that some sort of sports game? It is a sports ball game. Mm -hmm. um, the the birds lost, but the KC's won. So the red and white team won, and the greenish black team lost uh, because their cleats apparently were not sufficient for the type of ground. <laughs> that's that's what I kept. That's what you I should heard. Be an excuse announcer. to me. Uh, <laughs> you should be an announcer, and someone has the ball. It's the cleats again. Uh, I'm gonna have to change those out. So what well, a ludicrous <laughs> display. During the broadcast, it was somewhere in the third quarter when I turned it on just to see if I could even get it on my system here. And the first, one of the first things I saw on the screen, guys, and they cut up to, uh, I, oh, I saw our, our friend Brad Cooper, Bradley Cooper up there oh, with, how is Brad? Uh, with Amir. He was hanging oh. out with um, Amir. Uh, Questlove? Questlove. Yeah, and, the, and there was a shot of... Rupert Murdoch sitting down, just housing some food from the stadium, sitting next to Elon Musk. Mm -hmm. And they were commenting about, oh, look at the, look at the power the of those elite. two seats. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Uh, well, Rupert signs our checks. So anyway, yeah, it's just but really also, funny but, how it but works. E Elon likes to... Uh, kind of cast himself as a different type of gazillionaire than Rupert Murdoch. Uh, and, you know, while sitting next to each other at a sports ball game doesn't necessarily mean that you share all of the same, you know, ideas. It's not a great look either, you know? 
Yeah, yeah. It, and also, it's we have to assume that that is packaged publicity too, right? Uh, so this is where it gets very, very tricky. You know, uh, we have to realize that the, the controversy here, ultimately, if we're talking about Twitter and not the not necessarily the Biden stuff, which we will do in a future episode, if we're talking about just Twitter, then we have to realize this is a privately owned for-profit entity that simultaneously gets treated as though it is a public town square. It's a hybrid. And a lot of times you will hear people treat it as public or private according to the convenience of whatever helps them the most in what they're saying. So it's like it changes on how I feel it will work for me is what public figures are saying. They have a problem. It's a public space, free speech. They uh, they want something shut down. It's a private space. And that applies to Musk himself. He's always using the town square argument. Uh, And that's why he claims that he bought the thing because it's so important and it needs to be, you know, handled by someone that understands it, you know, because it was being, you know, poorly managed, uh, which the proof is definitely in the pudding. As soon as, you know, Musk came on, (laughs) it really created problems. And it seems so transparent that all of the moves he's making are to protect his ludicrous investment uh, in a platform that had no way to make anywhere near that kind of money and by, you know, adding the for pay blue check mark and now they're even doing things that were like a joke a year ago like ooh i bet you i'll it'll be like the new york times where once i've read a certain number of articles it's gonna like you know limit me and they're talking about literally doing that on twitter where like unless really? you have a premium account you can only read x number of tweets per day or no. twi- tweet x number of times per day maybe i'm getting those mixed up but it's something along those lines all of this stuff so clearly is not to better and further the town square model, but it's to make sure that Elon makes his money back. Uh, yeah, yeah. Because again, for-profit entity, uh, even though it has become a sort of public square and a very important one, whether you love it or hate it. And if you look at the heart of the argument about the Twitter files and social media in general, you see that is the issue. That is the great dilemma. Intelligence companies are super deep in bed with social media. Look at look at CIA stuff like InQtel and ask yourself some hard questions about transparency. But still, social media is a private enterprise. That means ultimately the folks who own the door or keep the gates decide what goes through. And that's why those algorithms are proprietary black boxes. As we're recording now, millions of people are trying to figure out arcane algorithms, not just in social media, but also in things like Apple or Spotify. How do we know what gets to the top? How do we make our stuff get to the top? And those companies, including Twitter, are under absolutely no legal compulsion to show their work or indeed explain themselves. That's why countless tragedies occur across the planet every single day. And all you might see in your feed is a bunch of yahoos arguing about the color of a dress. Remember that one? Remember what was it? It was like, is it blue? Is it beige? I never saw the blue. I only saw the, the beige or the gold, whatever. Talking about arguing, guys, I ha- I just had to say this before we end this episode. So through the- through this, I ended up <laughs> looking at a lot more of the Hunter Biden laptop stuff than I even expected. And 
I, I found another New York Post article where it's a short video from December 2019. Is that true? Yeah, December 2019 of Joe Biden talking at a town hall in Iowa. And somebody, just somebody in the audience just asks Joe Biden, just right to his face, like standing pretty close to him, about the laptop and his son and selling access, you know, in Ukraine and in Europe. And y'all, Joe Biden's reaction to this guy who was just asking a question, he wasn't, the guy wasn't like being mean about it, you know what I mean? Or like super accusatory. He asked him a question about it. Joe Biden's literally like, like, oh, you're a liar, man. Do you want to do push-ups? Come on. I'll do more push-ups than you. Let's go. You're f- Whoa, and he calls, he calls the dude overweight. Yes, he, he challenges the dude to do push-ups. He calls him overweight. He's like, basically goes in on this guy like um, somebody who's, you know, he he didn't actually want to talk about the thing. He just was like, bro, let's fight. <laughs> it was one <laughs> of the push-ups? strangest things. It was one of the strangest things. I don't know how to. I I feel like if you ask somebody a question and they respond with a push-up challenge, unless your question is about push-ups, it's yeah, it's kind of a, an attempted matrix dodge. That's nuts. That's nuts. Uh, so, okay, but we have to ask: Did Elon Musk do the right thing by releasing the Twitter files? I would say yes. I, I would say it, it jibes. It vibes with the idea of transparency, but what we have to also remember is the Twitter files didn't go directly to you, the public. The Twitter files went to reporters, and those reporters pick and choose what they release. So it goes through several filters. We have no idea what was left out. That's true. I mean, Paul, we can leave that pause there. Because, yeah, that's it. Because <laughs> what what was the stuff that they didn't want you to know? I mean, I don't know. This is this conversation has gone a lot of places. I know we got we went a little long, but I feel like we we brought up a lot of questions that are very difficult to answer. I mean, what do you guys think? Should no, Matt? Should we just try to get Paul to buy Twitter? Yeah, I, I think that, uh, we could do some fundraising. We could help with that. Yeah, <laughs> so, I trust you in charge, Paul. Let's do that. I think yeah, I, th- I think Paul's the right guy for the job. But uh, we want to hear what you think, folks, uh, about the Twitter files, about the nature of a public versus a private platform. Was Elon Musk right to release this? Was this overhyped? Was this the smoking gun of a conspiracy that a lot of media ignores? Send us your thoughts. Oh, gosh. You can find us on Twitter and all sorts of internet places. Yeah, hit us up on Twitter. We are at Conspiracy Stuff. Ben has one, too. Uh, He's got one. You can find him directly. (laughs) <laughs> you can also find one. us you can, yeah I, I like you guys should see how whimsical matt is about this uh you can also <laughs> find us on instagram tiktok youtube uh here's where it gets crazy on facebook and if none of that quite bags your badgers fear not you can also give us a telephone call that's right. One eight three three S T D W Y T K is the number to call. Leave a message at the sound of Ben's 
dulcet tones. Three minutes is the time you shall have to deliver your missive. If you need more time than that, there's another way to get in touch with us. It's the good old-fashioned way, with an email. We are conspiracy at iheartradio.com. Stuff They Don't Want You to Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long for just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Attention, true crime enthusiast. Searching for a way to unwind after diving deep into the mysteries that keep you up at night? Look no further. Introducing Lazarus Naturals, your trusted companion for CBD relief. With a commitment to transparency, Lazarus Naturals oversees every step from farm to doorstep, ensuring purity and quality you can trust. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today and discover how CBD can help you decompress and recharge for your next investigation. That's LazarusNaturals.com. Lazarus Naturals, your partner in unraveling the mysteries of true crime. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota.